Hey, this is Cody. And Kevin. And Franklin. Thanks for joining us on the Conversations on Jesus podcast. Pull up a chair and hang out as we talk about who Jesus is and what that means for our lives. Hello and welcome to the Conversations on Jesus podcast. I'm Kevin, and of course I'm here with Franklin and Cody. In this episode of the podcast, we're continuing our discussion through the Gospel of Matthew. So far, we've talked through chapters 1 through 4, and in the last episode, we started talking through the Sermon on the Mount. We got through verses 1 through 12, and we'll be continuing the conversation with verse 13, going through the end of chapter 5. Now, there's a lot to cover, but I think we can do it if you guys think we can. 100%. Sweet. I definitely think we can. All right. Let's go for it then. So in chapter 5, we started with... um, talking about how Jesus uh, goes up to the mountain and the crowds come to him. And um, we mentioned that those that the crowds of people were the people that he had been healing, right? Yeah. Yep. The people who, yeah, less, uh, maybe not accepted in society. Right. Yep. Right. They were sick, um, probably poor, because if they weren't, then they would have gotten help um, elsewhere before but they had to come to jesus because they don't have any options left so he goes on the mountain um and then he gives the beatitudes and we talked about how that is not instruction for how to live it's this is how people live in the kingdom of god or this is how the kingdom of god functions exactly whereas the the ten commandments are instructions more so instructions of how to live right you shall not do this. You shall not do that. The Beatitudes say, blessed are the poor in spirit. Well, there's no command in there. That's just a blanket statement of the poor in spirit people are blessed because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's not go be poor in spirit. It's this type of people in the kingdom of God are blessed. Yep. Right. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Um, then he wraps that up with saying, Uh, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who are before you. Talking to a people who have probably been persecuted already before. Probably their whole lives. Right. To, To some varying degree. Right. Probably not for Jesus, but persecuted in a way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's right. So, what happens next is um, he's going to continue his sermon, if that's what we want to call it, his teaching, his exhortation, whatever that is, but the language. So, the, okay, so we start our conversation in verse 13, and he talks about salt and light in that section. But the first thing that I noticed is the language changes from Jesus. And I was wondering if you guys noticed this or what you guys think about it. So before we had mentioned, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now he says, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. Yeah. It's a, it's like a perspective, um, changing his, his vocabulary of, um, the Beatitudes. It's, it's, this is us and this is how we're living Mm -hmm. in the kingdom. Kind of like you had said, like instructions of what kingdom living is like. And now this, um, transition has moved into Jesus's saying, you know, this is, he's setting the stage in the Beatitudes and now he's, he's taking it to a place of like you, like more direct and focused to those of which he's actually right talking to. Right. Yeah. I would say that, uh, specifically it changes in verse 11, right before the salt 
salt and light. Uh, he says, blessed are you when people insult you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I would say that looking at it, I think that's when he make, makes his change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with you. Before he was he was talking about a, a specific type of people, poor in spirit, mourn, meek. Now, or in verse 11, as you mentioned, Franklin, blessed are you. Um, and then here, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. There's still not commands. He's not saying you shall be the light of the world. You shall be the salt of the earth. He says that they are the salt and the light, which just changes it again a little bit. It's The sermon isn't, although we'll get into some things that are commands, but at least up to this point, he isn't telling people what to do. He's telling them who they are. Yeah, giving them a... Oh, what's the word? A vocation? Is that what you're thinking? That, but um, a, a sense of self-identity mm-hmm. is what I was going for. Mm-hmm. Um, he's helping them because the, the, they are the group of people that is looked down at. Like, they're not common folk, yeah. per se. Uh, and so he's giving them their identity of you are a solid, like, yeah. Yeah, helping them define that themselves and clearly see that. Whereas before, up to this point, they probably hadn't thought much of themselves or thought very highly of themselves because they were sick or they were poor or they were, you name the, the word word choice, but they were not how Jesus is, is saying that they are. And so I think that transition for him to start addressing them, I think that would be super neat to... To witness, I mean, yeah, and he's not just so. One of the things I didn't want to lose in that is that he's not just talking about sick people and poor people. Neither of us said that, but I just want to make right. it clear: he's talking about followers of him that happen to be sick and poor. That's who are coming to him. But at the most foundational level, they're disciples of Jesus. That's who's the salt of the earth. That's who's the light of the world. Are disciples of him. Um, so it's not like if you're poor, you are the salt of the earth. No, you can be rich or poor, but if you're a follower of Jesus, then you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. Does that make sense? Yeah. Why do you think he chose salt and light? That's literally the next question (laughs) that I have is why salt and light together? Right. They're in the Mediterranean area. Mm -hmm. So my guess would be that salt is... I mean, just the actual tangible they know what it is. item of salt. They know what it is. They can relate to it. They're surrounded by it. Mm-hmm. It's all over. Mm-hmm. It's used probably very frequently. Because they don't have refrigeration for things. Right. So the common use of salt is to preserve food, meat, things like that. Yep. And so Jesus says, how can I make this relatable? And even takes that, you know, that next step further besides the directing his conversation from a people of the kingdom to them. He's also giving them something that they can say, oh, yeah, I know what salt does. And I know that, right. like he says, um, if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made? Like they know what firsthand right. what that's like. So I think that relatable aspect maybe. And then as far as the light, he frequently goes to that mm-hmm. light and darkness. Mm-hmm kind of theme well to me kev you hit it right the nail right on the head when you said salt's purpose is to preserve so when when jesus is calling his followers the salt of the earth we're we're being called to preserve the earth and and preserve christianity as its whole yeah 
Yeah. So he um, salt has a specific use. It it's a preserve. It's also used so it's used to preserve things because they don't have refrigeration. If you can't keep things cool, then things are going to rot in a hurry. Right. So they use salt to do that. But it's also used to heal people, to clean wounds and everything. They use salt. So it's an everyday item that they is very useful to their way of life. And light is, okay, so we'll talk about the light in a second. But salt, so so the disciples then are the salt of the earth. They are a very useful thing that ought to be used every day in their life. But he says, if salt loses its saltiness, can it be made salty again? It cannot. Which means if you're a follower, I think what it means is that if you're a follower of me and you are living in an unworthy manner or you're not following through with what we've talked about or the life that I'm living or I've called you to live, then you're not useful to me or to this movement, the kingdom of God at all. It, it's salt is to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You're of no use anymore. So to tell that to a group of believers, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, you throw it out. I hear that and I go, man, if I'm a follower of Jesus and I'm a poor one or I don't, um, I reject what's going on, then I'm of no use in the kingdom of God anymore. This is not flowery, happy Jesus all the time. That's It's real Jesus who says um, to the same group, uh, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. If you guys are going to be in the kingdom of God with me, and you're not living according to the kingdom of God, you are like salt, which is best to be thrown out after it's lost its saltiness. Because what are you going to use salt that doesn't work anymore? Like, you you can't use that for anything anymore. Yeah, I mean, if you preserve a piece of meat, you don't rub the salt off and use it again. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Or if that salt didn't work, which I don't know if salt loses its saltiness but that's he's just making the point that if it were like i'm not going to use bad salt on something i'm going to throw it in the trash Mm -hmm. it's a you know it's it's going to cause more harm than good Mm -hmm. you're going to try putting the bad salt on the meat to preserve and it's not going to preserve then the meat's bad and the salt's bad and now you're going to have to throw that out that's right it's just like as a follower if if you're not living for the lord uh you're going to cause people to stumble exactly which causes us to be thrown out that's right yeah, and that, I mean, even in some of the things that you had said, it kind of foretells what comes later in in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. So we'll get there. Yeah, so then he also says you're the light of the world, and we talked about that for a second, um, but it brings him back to the Gospel of John where Jesus, well, in the beginning of the Gospel of John, it says that Jesus is the light of men. He is, um, he's the true light. Jesus calls himself the light of the world, he will have the light of life. The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. Um, in the Gospel of Mark, it says, "Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand, for nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. So, so uh, followers of Jesus and Jesus himself are not called to um, keep people in darkness, they're called to bring the light into the already existing darkness, right? Um, light lights up everything that it comes in contact with. Darkness can't withhold the light. Um, but then he calls his disciples 
the light themselves. So they're useful people if they're doing what they're called to do. Mm. Right. Yeah. And it's that if, mm-hmm. if they're doing it. Mm-hmm. And I noticed one other thing before we move on to the next section. Um, I thought it was interesting that he calls them the salt of the earth, but he doesn't call them the light of the earth. He calls them the light of the world. Um, so I wrote down a couple of things. I got to find it here. Um, Can I take a guess? Yeah. Yeah. So what do you think is going on? So salt is a mineral Mm -hmm. and it comes of the earth Mm -hmm. and light does not come from earth. Mm. It comes from outside of earth. And so you're the salt of the earth, right? Because where does salt, it comes from the earth and light doesn't come from the earth. And so you're the light of the world illuminating. Yeah. I, yeah, I think I agree with that. I was thinking similar things in in English. I was thinking the use of earth and world, though, are almost synonymous. Mm -hmm. If somebody says you live on the earth or you live in the world, there's the difference there. You live on the earth, but you live in the world. So um, that's a little different. Uh, But it's not the other thing that I wanted to point out just for... um, if anybody's interested, it's it's not that it's a quirky thing in English, like, oh, we chose earth for one word and, and world for another. But in Greek, it really is the word earth, and it really is the word world. So when Jesus said it, he was making a distinction between the two. So he purposefully chose yeah. to distinguish the two as being separate. Yeah. Not, yeah. Yeah. So I think it leads to what you had said, that there's a difference there, and he wants us to get at what the difference is. Salt of the earth, those are... Uh, physical Tan- things. Tangible. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And light of the world. We often use world as another term for fallenness or darkness or sin even. That's worldly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it would make sense that the light would come into the world. It, it's almost like he was saying the light comes into the darkness. You are the light of the darkness. Um, so, you know, for whatever that's worth, I noticed those couple of things and I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, it is for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So he's going to continue though. And here we get into one of the trickiest, maybe trickiest parts in the whole, well, divorce is coming up in a minute and that gets pretty <laughs> tricky, but <laughs> this is a pretty tricky part. Um, what do you guys think about the, uh, law section here? Oh man. Um, uh, geez, murder or anger always. It'll, it'll, like, it's my own personal wrestling match every single time I read it. So, as, as men, we're called to protect. Um, so, in the situation of um, just the most recent thing that's happened in Colorado, mm-hmm. what, what are we supposed to do in that situation? Mm. Because we're, we're called to, to love all, but in a situation where there's no love coming out of an individual, and what they're doing is all for all out of hate Mm -hmm. or i mean yeah so to me when we're talking about let me find the passage uh verse 22 but Mm -hmm. i tell you uh that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment again anyone who says to a sister raka is answerable to the court and anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell so which is all in the context of what what's he talking about there what do you mean? Like, so in the beginning, he says, you've heard that it was said to those of old, mm-hmm. you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And then what you quoted, yeah. but I say to you that everyone who is angry. Yeah. Will, yeah. yeah. So there's, there's murder, 
And then Jesus seems to be saying that anger and murder aren't that different from one another. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's what I mean. That's where it brings like the personal wrestling match because that, that situation in Colorado or, I mean, put, put your name on it. It's frustrating that that still happens. Mm-hmm. So then what, what are we called to do in that situation? Right. Like if, um, a lot of us own, well, guns or anything can be a weapon a lampshade could be a weapon Mm -hmm. so an individual breaks into our house what are we supposed to do yeah right yeah that's where it brings you were looking just at this um jesus here okay so there's there's one way to look at the sermon on the mount and see it as just a um a similar teaching to the ten commandments you shall not murder well, Jesus seems to be doing something different with it here. So he's not saying don't murder because murder is bad. He's saying, actually, you all are murdering people all the time already. And murder, I'm telling you, is from anger in your heart. It's not, okay, so you can physically kill someone. They've murdered somebody, but Jesus says the murder runs deeper because it's coming from inside of who you are. Okay, so that's the first level of it. The second level of it is I, I don't think that Jesus was um, giving a teaching on what you should do or not do. Mm-hmm. Like, like I don't think that's what the Sermon on the Mount is. Earlier here, he says, in, starting in verse 17, okay, so he says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to what? Fulfill. Fulfill, Fulfill them, right. So you have to be, or I would have to be thinking, the reason that Jesus has to say a statement like that is because he knows what he's going to say is going to sound like he's abolishing the law and the prophets. So he's getting out ahead of it, right? He's saying, do not think I have come to abolish. And and the other interesting thing is that he doesn't say I've come to keep the law either. It's not, I haven't come to abolish. I've come to keep. It's I've not come to abolish. I've come to fulfill. Fulfill is something it's, ultimate where keep is is continuing and there's no end in it exactly yeah fulfillment means something that needed to be finished is finished where like you said if it's if he said i'm here to keep the law mm-hmm. that means the law continues and nothing changes mm-hmm. uh which for me poses the question of like i wonder if if people heard jesus and what he said there as you know we can we can do what we want we're free from the law like Jesus is ending the law, don't it? I can eat pork now. <laughs> Sweet, thanks right. Jesus. Right. Like something like that. Uh, it just it makes me makes me wonder. Yeah. Or if people if people heard what Jesus said and it was that impactful or powerful to where they knew like, okay, he's ending it, but but right because there's more. because he does say going off your point. In verse 18, after he says, I've come to fulfill them, mm-hmm. for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So, and, and then he says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so in that little block, we have Jesus saying, I've not come to abolish. So whatever you hear me say, whatever you see me do, you have to you have to put it in the framework that this is fulfillment of the law and not abolishing the law. 
Second, it seems that he's in that intermediate period between the law being fulfilled and him fulfilling it. Right. You know? And, because and he realizes that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so... Uh, what my footnotes said, uh, footnotes in the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> I love them. Uh, yeah, they're very helpful. It said that um, Jesus was saying that because um, during the times, a lot of the the commandments were getting really lax, and it was to not allow them the freedom to think exactly what you guys were thinking, like that, oh, we can do whatever we want. It was because like they were getting twisted into to what our own worldly conceptions wanted them to be. That's right. Yeah. They definitely were. Right. Yeah. Can I ask a question? Yeah. So, uh, verse 18. Mm-hmm. Truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, smallest stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. So, he says two untils, right? Mm-hmm. Until heaven and earth disappear, right? Like, what does he mean when he says that? Okay. And then, like, so then he says, will anything disappear from the law until everything is good? So the everything is accomplished, mm-hmm. right, is Jesus fulfilling it. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess the question was, until heaven and earth disappear, why like, yeah. why that? Because when is heaven and earth going to disappear? Right. Um, I think it's a, it's a tricky statement. I think it's um, a rhetorical statement in nature is to say, until heaven and earth disappear. Like an extreme state. Like, yeah, which means right. Okay. When, exactly what you said. When are they going to disappear? Mm-hmm. Well, they're not. So that means um, uh, nothing is going to pass from the law forever until he says the last until, which is until all is accomplished. Okay. So that statement doesn't mean um, an iota or a dot will not pass from the law ever, period, it means it will not pass from the law ever until I have accomplished everything that I have come to accomplish. So had Jesus not fulfilled the law. Then we would be then living we still under, the, under law. the law. That's correct. Yep. I think so. That's, yeah. I mean, that's my interpretation of that passage. Mm-hmm. And like you said, it's just the uh, when he says until heaven and earth disappear, like without putting that into context, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, even reading through it, it triggered like triggered me into thinking like what does he mean by that right because it's i mean that is because heaven and, and earth will come together they will join together in the final consummation of all things revelation 21 and 22 does not talk about the destruction of earth or the destruction of heaven it talks about the new heavens and the new earth being joined together like almost like two uh like a venn diagram how the circles intersect they will overlap each other uh, at the consummation, yes. To where to say I live on the earth would be the same thing as to say I live in heaven. There would be no difference there. The kingdom of heaven is on the earth fully consummated. Jesus is reigning completely, totally, n- nothing standing in his way anymore. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, so heaven and earth will never pass away. Therefore, nothing is going to be taken out of the law. Right. But... Jesus didn't say he came to keep the law ultimately, although he does in part, well, he does totally, but he came to fulfill the law. And in that is keeping it. Like he's not He's not throwing it in the trash. Exactly. Right. He's he's letting it have its say and and do what it's supposed to do, but ultimately it will be fulfilled. And when things are fulfilled, they are done. They're not fulfilled 
so that other people can try to fulfill them on their own later on. Mm -hmm. Jesus is the ultimate thing there, or the ultimate person there. Well, yes. Right. Right. And I think it's that plus he's speaking. So we're looking at it backwards. We're seeing this already fulfilled. When Jesus was saying that, it wasn't fulfilled yet. So I think what he's doing is hedging off this idea that when they hear he's going to fulfill the law, they go, oh, yes. Well, they probably don't go, oh, yes. They think, what am I going to do now? Yep. You know. But he's saying, I don't know, not so fast. Don't, don't think that you can teach somebody contrary to the law right now because I'm fulfilling it. It's not a license to throw it away. It's you're in that intermediate state. You know, it's... It's not done yet. It's not, but it's, we're working towards it, mm -hmm. but we're not quite there. And so you still have to still hold yourself to that accountable level of living to the law. Right. Or under the law. Right. Because I haven't 100% fulfilled it yet. Right. Yeah. And so, Franklin, what you had talked about, the first thing he gets to, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So what's he going at first thing is the law. He's not going at it. He's teaching from it. But what he's doing is I think he's teaching it how it's going to be fulfilled. This is the fulfillment of the law. You think it's just about taking somebody's life. And I say to you, whoever is angry with a brother or sister is one who has murdered them. Oh, 100%. Yeah. I agree with you yeah. in, the, in that facet. But yeah. I mean, with with my example, it's mm -hmm. like that anomaly that hopefully like none of us ever have to come into. But Right. Yes. And so is this a section where Jesus is telling us we, we are okay to stop somebody even if it means killing them? I don't think that's what he's even addressing here. Right. So to try to answer it with this section is going to get you all twisted oh, up. Yeah, yeah. You know, you can make it sound like it, but elsewhere in the New Testament it does talk about that. And well, we'll get there, but here I just I just don't even think it's one of those spots. Well, I think we like we talked about a couple episodes ago. You can make any verse sound like what you want it to sound like. Right. You can apply any verse to wherever you want. Uh is the matter of context. Mm -hmm. Like you said, in this specific instance, Jesus isn't given free reign and permission to go out and murder someone. Right. No, right. Like, <laughs> right. Have at him, boys. Right. Like, right. he's not saying that. He, right. He's he's addressing the the people and their actions at the time. Right. And in that, like, it is, it does seem crazy for us to think, why is he comparing being angry with something so extreme as murder? Well, and it, for me, it comes back to the idea of is is this a Band-Aid or is it a, a treatment or is it a cure, right? Because the, the Band-Aid or the treatment is fixing it for the short term, right? You're saying, okay, well, you shouldn't have murdered him. The keyword is saying, okay, why did you murder him? Oh, I see oh, That's saying. in your yeah. heart, yeah. right? And it's deeper than that. And I think that's what Jesus mm -hmm. is addressing here is that it's not – it's not necessarily the, obviously he's not promoting murder, right? but he's saying it's deeper than that action of murdering. Right. 
it's that intent or that motivation internally in your heart that if someone is angry, it's that same anger right. that drive. It's that same uh, emotion in their heart that drives them to anger that it does murder. Right. And uh, without addressing that, finding that keyword, that's where your heart is not going to be in the right place. You're right. I agree completely. Um, one question I had with the murder section is again, anyone who says to a brother or sister Rocco, which my understanding is like to spit on them or speak down to them. I understand it as to, to be, have abusive language towards somebody. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Uh, is answerable to the court. What court? Because it doesn't seem that Jesus would speak to, um, to an earthly court, right? In this context, he's, he's saying, mm. and, and I could be wrong. I don't know, but like I've heard, you know, is there courts in heaven that, oh, see, that would have to be addressed? Mm. Is it a court on earth or is it a court in heaven? Because he, I mean, he's, he's talking again, intent and in your heart, mm-hmm. not the action necessarily. Although the action is bad, he's addressing, uh, like you said, that the the motivation behind anger and yeah. murder is the same. And so yeah. is that court here? Mm. I've never thought of that before, honestly. That's the first time I've ever thought of that question. I just, it, like I said, it just doesn't seem like question. that Jesus would make a reference to a court on earth. Mm. Well, yeah, and he's going to again. So he's going to say... Um, uh, uh, so he talks about the judge. Mm-hmm. Settle matters. Verse mm-hmm. 25 is what you're looking at. That's right. Yep. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge. I think that's real court in the time. Okay. I don't think that's a different. So, yes. So if I'm thinking that through, I think the counsel is whatever counsel they had there for the laws that they had of the land at okay. that time. Yep. And the court would have been the in that time then too yeah okay. yeah i think so so to me i think uh 25 mm-hmm. real court but 22 example i think it's just the example of um the idea of speaking down to somebody or in a in a foolish manner because then he goes to say and anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell yeah i think he's just using it as an example of just talking harsh words to someone in a repercussive manner. I think you're right. Yeah, I would agree with that. That leads us to verse 27. Yeah. Uh, adultery. Uh, um, so we had some prior conversations around this. Oh yeah, we did. Kind of want to bring those back up. Um, so he says, you've heard that it said shall not commit adultery. I tell you anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Right. So same setup. Yep. You've heard that it was said, but now I tell you. Yep, and okay. again, Jesus speaking to the intent in the heart, mm-hmm. not not the action, but the intent in mm-hmm. the heart. And it, it's neat to me that he makes sure to differentiate those. In what way does he differentiate? Looking at a woman, looks at a woman lustfully, he's already committed adultery with her in his heart. So, um, oh, in that mi- way, yes. mind versus heart. I see what you're saying. Yep, that lustful thinking of the mind. Uh, he's saying, no, no, no. It's not just that. I see what you're saying. It's deeper than that. That's the right. thing with the murder and the mm-hmm. anger. And I think yeah. that's something that it, it kept speaking to me as working through these is like, like you said, he's not setting, he's like, you know, this is what it was. Right. 
but I'm wanting to show you guys because I think, to, like you said, Franklin, um, some of the Ten Commandments are not ten, but the commandments are starting to get a little laxed. Mm-hmm. And Jesus is saying, "Okay, yep, like you know that, but right." So somebody says, ah, "I never slept with her, or I never slept with them, so I didn't commit adultery." Mm-hmm. And Jesus says, "Well, actually, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman." has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Um, and and then further, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that one of your members, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. And we talked about this the other week. Mm-hmm. And, and we were talking about how, well, sure, if you look at somebody and you lust, then you can pluck your eye out. You can pluck your right eye out, but then what do you have left to look at them with? You have your left eye. So you can sin with your left eye or your right eye or your right hand or your left hand. The idea, I think, that what Jesus is getting at is is a heart change that has to happen with you. That it, you, um, exactly what you said, you have already committed adultery with her in his heart. That is what has happened. Physically, there might have not been anything. But the intent was there, the the want was there, all of those things were there. And so although I so I struggle with this part of it, if somebody were to come up to me and say, Hey Kevin, I lusted after this man or woman, should I just go ahead and sleep with them because it's the same thing? I've already done it. Hmm. I wouldn't say, Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I would say there's a big difference here between you recognizing that and trying to do something with that and you going out and sleeping with them. Well, and it's that idea of uh, taking action on your thought. Mm -hmm. The sin isn't the thought. It's the acting on that. Yeah. And Jesus makes sure to address both here in that section. He addresses the thoughts and he addresses the actions. Right. Right. Because for me, when he says you can pluck your eye out, well, that's the thought of doing something lustful. Mm. And then if you cut your hand off, that's the action of doing Mm. something lustful. Mm. And so he's saying... It, you could do either. You're still committing yeah, adultery. Right. I got two things. Yeah. The three that? H's: head, heart, hands. Okay. That's what that I that I think is what Jesus is talking about. Cut. You can cut your hands off. You can, but you're still gonna have your heart. Mm-hmm. You know, you're still gonna think about it. And then um, my other thing, Gary talked about this perfectly uh, last Sunday, two Sundays ago. Either way, about David and Bathsheba. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first thing that David had done wrong was not like, A, look at her, but then in his heart, he lusted after her. Right. And that's what led to the killing of Uriah and that's right. everything. That's so right. to me, um, uh, Gary also had a set of questions, so I'm going to piggyback off of them 100%. He said, <laughs> ask God for forgiveness and then, Ask yourself, is it loving to A, the the woman or the man's honor for looking at him or her or lusting after them? Uh, if you're married, your spouse or significant other. And most importantly, to God, because we're clearly called not to do that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So then I would say repent. That's repent, right. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's right. Yep. So, so we talked about anger and murder and lust and adultery. And we're going to ratchet it up here dun, just dun, a dun. touch. And we're going to talk about divorce because Jesus says it was also said, 
Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife to accept on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So it seems like in the time there was this idea that if you wanted to divorce somebody, your wife, all you needed to do was get a written certificate and you could throw her away like... Done. Yeah, I'm done with this marriage and I'll move on. And if I want to be done with that one, I'll just get another certificate and then I'll get another one and I'll get another one. Oh, that's all I have to do? Well, that's easy. Right. Let me get this signed real quick. We're done. Right. So the law, which said, this is the step I want you to take so that you would not get divorced, has been over time switched to this is all you have to do to get a divorce. So now it's not a a a boundary anymore. Now it's like, it's a regulation. It's a green light. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, that speaks to life now, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, a very situ- similar situation as to uh, how easy is it to get divorced? Right. What are we, like 50%, 52? Yeah, it's. I think it's over 50%. Something ridiculously high. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's so easy. And, and so, and, well, I'm sorry. No, you're fine. And yeah. like the, um, the go-to, instead of, Let's work it out and work on it. Matt, let's get divorced. Right. Like it's it's like you said, it's switched into um, what used to be a boundary is now again to a point of eh, right. it's easy. It's it's that easy to go mm-hmm. get a divorce. Um what was I gonna say? Oh, the other thing I was gonna say is uh, some people well, we even talked about this the other week. Excuse me, some people point to this section and say, Oh, Jesus is saying the only time that you can ever get a divorce is um, based on uh, sexual immorality, adultery, whatever. Um, And if you were looking at this passage alone, I don't have anything to argue with because that's all Jesus says right here. The problem comes in is when you read the rest of the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament because other things get brought in. So the the one thing that I would want to point out in this is that this is not the last statement on divorce and even remarriage. That's going to be talked about in the New Testament and when that's applicable or when that's allowed. Um, This is a particular situation that Jesus is using to talk about how marriages function in the kingdom of God. And, And it seems to be that what Jesus is saying is that marriages in the kingdom of God should not be ended as easily as they are outside of the kingdom of God. So when we look at the world and we see, or the United States, and we see 51, 52% divorce, right? Okay, that, that's the world. I, I would expect nothing less. In the kingdom of God, in the church, if the rate is that high, which I don't, it probably is close to that, I would say, man, there's something wrong there. Mm-hmm. Why are we so close to what outside of the kingdom of God is like? We're clearly not living in the kingdom or to the kingdom. Yeah. 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 There seems if, to be something yeah, going on there. If yeah. there is that similar percentage or amount that are getting divorced within the church. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. We briefly chatted. Um, my question was, is Jesus saying a divorced woman has to stay single the rest of her life? Mm. And from this passage, what would it look like? Yes. Yes. Right. But again, back to the, um, the point that you had just made right. about, um, what was it? Remarrying? Or uh, divorcing, except for sexual, like read under just the context of this specific Matthew chapter five, right? Uh, Sermon on the Mount section, right? Yeah, yep. She can never remarry, mm-hmm. but the story doesn't in there, 
And so neither should our teaching or our beliefs as to what a woman should do. Right. Right. It's not the same thing as saying Jesus didn't say what he said here. He did say that. It's not, it's not like I'm looking at the text and I'm saying, well, even though Jesus said that um, uh, except on the ground of sexual immorality and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery with her, he didn't really mean that. No, I think he meant it. He definitely meant it. The thing is, though, this is not the last thing he says. This is not the last word on divorce from Jesus even or the rest of the New Testament. So it's not a weasel thing um, to, to say, well, I think there's more to be said. It's just a matter of fact that Jesus is going to talk about this again. So if you want to deal with divorce just on Matthew 5, verses 31 and 32, okay. But I don't think you're getting the full exactly. understanding or the full picture of uh, what Jesus intended. Right. If you right. look under a microscope at just this one verse or one section of verses, right. you're not going to gain the full understanding, Right. which at that point, that's no difference in different in my opinion than taking whatever verse you want and applying it to whatever context you want right because you're not you're not taking into account the full picture of what jesus was fulfilling and setting forth as far as for us to live by right do you know off the top of your head what the other reasons were for divorce yeah well paul talks about if a married couple uh, believers are married and then one of them decides that they want to reject jesus now and they're an unbeliever, yep. then Paul seems to be saying that you can treat them as an unbeliever, and therefore that marriage has... Non-void, right? It's possible. Okay. So I don't think he says you must. Just like Jesus doesn't say here, if there's adultery, you must divorce. Oh, right. It's grounds he, for divorce. It's grounds for divorce. You may divorce here, but he doesn't say you have to. And Paul, I think, makes that same thing with an unbelieving spouse at that point going, well, um, I think that's First Corinthians 7, Um that it's grounds to do that there, but you don't have to. Mm-hmm. Um, he's gonna, uh, we're gonna get to another section of it, Matthew 19, where Jesus is gonna talk about divorce again, and it's gonna be expanded more. Um, but that's one of the other things that comes up with it. Yeah, yeah. I totally always looked at it like it was under a microscope in Matthew 6. Like, the only means for divorce, sexual immorality, mm-hmm. 100%. <laughs> right, I mean, like that was the only thing that, that was said would, about it. Yep. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, nope, I can't get divorced under any other circumstance. Well, well, because I think a lot of other things can be worked through. And to be honest, I, like as as a society, I think we just throw in the towel too easily. Even that can be worked through. Right. You know. Oh, one hundred percent. If I were counseling somebody, or I, and they said here there was sexual immorality, there was adultery. Okay, that's that's awful. Um. But my first thing wouldn't be, you guys ought to get a divorce. <laughs> no, cut the ties now. Yeah. Right, right. It would be, how can we bring reconciliation to this relationship first um, and and go through all of those avenues before you get to terminating the marriage? Yeah. Because yeah. a marriage restored from something like that is much better than, well, there's so many different situations no, that you can right. be in, but that's, yeah, that's something to say about that. Um, so next section on oaths, um, it's a unique situation, uh, section for me as someone who previously worked in finances. Um, and we mentioned, Mm -hmm. I mean, any financing uh, agreement is considered an oath, right? A mortgage, a car, whatever that may be. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it was when I was reading through this, like, is Jesus saying don't take out a mortgage? (laughs) Have I been sinning the whole time? <laughs> you know what I mean? And like, I think 
for someone to read that and like not give thought to it, mm-hmm. right? If they're just reading it and saying, okay, this is how I'm living. Mm-hmm. They, that interpretation could be there. Right. And, and so for me, it was that question of like, hmm. I mean, I get, you know, if we have debt, then we're a slave to debt. Mm-hmm. And I understand that aspect. But again, like it just was interesting for me to think about because he says, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven for it's God's throne by earth for it's his footstool or by Jerusalem for it's the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot even make one hair white or black. And it's like, well, all right, Jesus, you didn't have to go and flex on us, <laughs> saying we have no control over lies, and you, yeah, you control it. Instead, do what? What does Jesus say to do? Simply say yes or no. That's right. And anything past that comes from the evil one. Yeah. And so, through our yeah, through our conversation, it was like, okay. Well, he's not saying don't take out a mortgage. Right. What's happening is that we're finding like that Venn diagram thing. We have heaven and earth overlapped here with the kingdom of God, but it's not totally. So we live in the world and in the world we have mortgages for things and we have things that we must sign our name to in the witness of somebody else to make sure that even though we might not be the most trusting person, the person who is watching us and co-signing on this thing, they are trustworthy. So the both of us together will for sure give you your money. Jesus, I think, is saying in the kingdom of heaven, why are you doing all that? Why do you, if you're a trustworthy person, then all you need to say is yes or no. You, the reason that you're that you're swearing an oath is because you know that you're not gonna hold up your end of the bargain. And, and, and you still want the thing that you wanna put your bad name on, and the way to put your bad name on it is to swear upon Jerusalem, or the or heaven, the throne of God, those things. Okay, I swear on uh, by heaven, I promise you I will do this. Ooh, that's a big deal. Yeah, that's a big deal. He, he definitely, he's going to pay that one back. <laughs> right. That one that he swore on, on his camel, eh. Right, who cares? Who cares about the camel? He swore, he swore on heaven. That's right. That man's serious. He's paying this one back, so I'll give it to him. Right, and Jesus is saying, what are you doing? Yeah. And... So we talked about it before. Paul is going to swear by God in his letters. He'll do a, a number of times. Um, so is Paul sinning? Uh, no. He's, it's a particular situation where in his letter he's writing and making a point on what he's saying. I think they're both living in the kingdom of God and saying, look, if, if you're going to do something and you are a follower of me, which this is who he's talking to in the Sermon on the Mount, are followers of him, all you need to say is yes or no. And your fellow followers and disciples, even those outside, are going to be able to trust you because you always do what you say you do. Um, well, and I think that aspect of the trust part, mm-hmm. when you are right a follower and you're living according to the way Jesus instructs and you say yes or no, right. like that trust then is then on them. Yeah, that's right. That, that it's taken out of your hand. And so you say, yes, I can do this. Well, then you've done yours Mm -hmm. and you can't, you, you can't control whether they believe that trust or not. If they're, I mean, if they're a believer, then one would hope that they would have full trust in that, Mm -hmm. right? Because they're walking in accordance to the way Jesus instructs. And so are you. And so believe you by, through our faith that when you say yes, you mean yes. When you say no, you mean no. Right. What are you thinking, Franklin? Are you just listening? No, I'm thinking 100. Yeah. percent You guys are saying exactly what's going through my head. Uh, 
I mean, we have no reason to swear on anything because, like Jesus said, the the hairs on our heads we can't turn white or black. So why are we swearing on heaven or earth or right. anything? I mean, yeah, live, walk it like you talk it, man. Mm-hmm. I mean, if if you're gonna say you're gonna do something, you better do it. That's right. Yeah, that's simple. Keeping the truth. Mm-hmm. So then he's gonna go into uh, one of the. Uh, more famous lines that's used uh, in the church, outside of the church, everywhere, is you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I think it was, oh man, was it Gandhi who said an eye for an eye makes the whole world go blind? Like he's even... I think so, yeah. Yeah. Which I think, I don't don't know anything about Gandhi, any uh, teaching substantial thing, but I think he's wrong. And I think he's looking at that and applying it wrong, but that's a whole... Whatever, <laughs> but he says, I don't know where I was That's going with that. Different conversation that yeah. conversations on Jesus. We're probably not going to no. But so he says, uh, an eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth. This is what you've heard. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. The Old Testament was very clear that if if um, somebody in somebody did something to you, they hurt you, they stole from you, they damaged property. The way to to even things out is for the same thing to be done to them: an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand, a foot for a foot. That's where it's coming from 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 the Old Testament, um, and that can be understood to say the way that there's going to be justice here is to make everything even. If you break my hand, I'm going to break your hand. We have two broken hands. Now we're on an even keel here. What Jesus is doing with it here. Oh, okay. So the, the point of that was if you break my hand, I don't burn your house down. Those two things aren't evil or aren't uh, even. Yeah. You know, if, if you uh, uh, break my fence, I don't s- slaughter your cattle. Or whatever. Those are that's a overreaction to what has been done. But Jesus seems here to be messing with it a little bit and saying, "Look, uh, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye or tooth for tooth. Whatever somebody does to you, you can do back to them, so that things are even." So the so going back to the first thing I said, it was originally so that there was no extreme reactions one way or the other. Something for me um, is like this idea that Christians were going to. They take some context maybe out of Ephesians, put on the armor, and I'm going to stand up to the evil one and speak the truth, right? And for me, when I when I read this, right, like eye for eye, uh, anyone wants to see you, take your shirt, give it to them. Slaps you in the right cheek, give them the other one. Yeah. Right? Like to someone who has a mindset of I'm going to war with God or on behalf of God and oh, I'm going to speak life. Right. Like how does this verse not get looked at as uh, those Christians are submissive. Mm. Yeah. Well, like how do you balance that of standing up for what we believe is right and what we know to be truth in a world, right? And again, though we live in the world, we don't wage world war as the world does. Because our enemy is not flesh and blood. And I I understand that aspect, but there's still that battle Right, that still goes on on a daily basis mm-hmm. with people around us, with people in other countries. Right, right. Of 
the, the, the forces of evil, they're still battling. Mm-hmm. And as Christians, is it or is it not our duty to speak truth, speak light into the lives of others? And someone might look at this and say, well, you know, there, there might be some ruffling of feathers when I do that. But here, Jesus is saying, if they slap you on the right, give them the left. I don't know that I, I agree with that because, well, I'm battling for the, the, the mm-hmm. force is good. I see what you're saying. Go ahead. So to me, I would say not doing it through ourselves and doing it with the Holy Spirit intact with us because blessed are the more merciful and blessed are the meek. Mm-hmm. So we can be merciful and still like say what we have to say. We can be meek, but still have to say what we we think or what the Holy Spirit is putting on our hearts. Yeah, isn't that easier uh, said in a room with closed door than it's actually enacted in our life? Oh yeah, right, right. Yeah. So that and that's where my thing is is like in a real world application, right? When we're going about our day, how do we balance that between living? a meek life and turning the other cheek. Yeah. But also living in the world, trying to stick up for what we believe is right. right. One, in one. your case, right? Colorado. Yeah. What's right. Do you turn the other cheek and let that man do whatever he did? Right. Or. So I think there's two different things being talked about here. The first was the armor of God and we can get to the, um, the Colorado thing, but the first was the armor of God. And that's um, when Paul's talking about the armor of God, he's talking about, um, preparing yourself to withstand the attacks of the devil, mm-hmm. of the uh, principalities and rulers and powers of the air. He's not talking about anything physical at all. So, but so when we put on, oh, I'm sorry, what doesn't that um, the rulers and the principalities, the air, mm-hmm. right? They they would the way that they would rule is through something physical, right? So, how do you fight somebody? How do you fight against someone you can't see? Well, you can attack the person whom they're using, but that's not fighting the person that's using them. So when we put on the armor of God, I don't put on a real helmet. I don't put on a real breastplate or shield or you can't see any of them because I'm not fighting somebody that you can see. So in, in, in that aspect, I am, I am preparing to go to war with people with powers that I can't see and and faith is a fight it's a war the other side of it is you're talking a physical thing here so if you're hit um if anyone slaps you on the right cheek turn to him the other also what is that showing them in this instance so um one thing i want to remember is that we ought not to expand this into every situation and say that in every situation, if somebody hits you in the eye, you must offer them your other eye. You can't protect yourself. You can't protect somebody else. You can't. Jesus isn't saying that here. What he's saying is, um, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. It's not a fight between two people where there's an eye or an eye for a tooth for a tooth. It's somebody has done something to you, and then it's agreed upon, I get to do something back to you to even the score here. Jesus is saying something altogether different. He's saying when somebody wrongs you, your response is not to be, I get to wrong you back because you did that to me. His, res- his response, he wants our response, I think, to be, okay, you got wronged. Well, and it go- for, in hearing you say that, it goes back to that whole in your heart intent thing. Mm-hmm. Same thing as murder. Same thing as everything else that we've been talking about. It's 
it's not necessarily the response of your actions, mm-hmm. but the response of in your heart mm-hmm. and how you react to that. Right. Asking ourselves if it is the loving thing to do. Right. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And then we get down here to when somebody hits you in the cheek or when somebody steals something from you or when they force you to do something, okay, they did it. You know, you're to to expect that the kingdom of God is going to be confronting the world of darkness and evil and expect no retribution from that world is to be naive. The response is not to be, okay, if I'm going to, I need to just uh, let anybody do whatever they want to me all the time. I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about. He's saying when somebody does something to you or something happens, your response ought not to be, how do I get them back? Right. It should be, how do I live in the kingdom of God here? And, and, and Jesus is saying here, man, turn your you turn your cheek. If he if he um, takes your coat from you, give him your cloak as well. If he forces you to go one mile, go two. Bless the person who is, and then, okay, so bless the person who is doing evil against you. What does he say next? You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven, so that you might be peacemakers. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. And okay, so I'll keep reading because he's going to explain what he's talking about. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So he has raised the stake again and again and again through this section of the Sermon on the Mount. You think murder is just physically killing? I'm telling you it's anger. You think adultery is is just physically sleeping with somebody? I'm telling you it's lust in your heart. You think you can divorce anybody for any cause just because you are following the law and you have a certificate? I'm telling you, you're misapplying what was said there. Um, And then here, you think that an eye for an eye gives you license to do whatever you want to somebody as long as it's the same thing they did to you. I'm telling you, turn the other cheek and love your enemies. Um, love your enemies might be the most difficult thing that Jesus has ever told us to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know how that works out in every situation. I don't know how it works in Colorado. I don't know how it works in um, a whole host of situations. I can think of times in my life where I have um, purposefully tried to love those who I um, considered to be an enemy of mine, um, but I don't know how to flatly apply that and say this is how it works in every situation because I don't think it works that way. Yeah, and I, I don't know that that's intended for us to attempt. I don't think so either. You know what I mean? I I don't think that we're any any one of us believers is going to walk into that situation without the Holy Spirit guiding us and yeah. comforting us and helping us understand how do we love this enemy you know what I mean? and like not that right. god put us in that situation or told the person who wronged you to do what they did because that's not the case and i, I don't want to say that that doesn't mean that the holy spirit and god isn't with you in that situation and through that situation and working out of it and so yeah i mean like this this section for me it, it spoke to that along with um it's 
the living in this life in the kingdom is more than just continuing to talk with people in the kingdom. Mm-hmm. Right. It's cool to me as you think of that, how I, I long, well, I don't anymore, but I, uh, used to be like, oh, man, wouldn't have been great just to have the Old Testament law. Then you knew what you could do and what you couldn't do and everything would be so clean. You didn't have to question how, yeah. to, how to apply it to your life. Yeah. And then you get to Jesus here saying, um, and you go, oh, man, he's finally going to tell us what we can and can't do. And everything is kind of like, okay, well, it seems super clear here, but what about this sense? What do you mean love your enemies all the time? Like if somebody's trying to kill me, I have to love my enemy? Or if somebody repeatedly is, or what about divorce, my it's just it's um the messiness though is what it is to live in the kingdom of god mm-hmm. well and that is something that um after i had worked through all of these uh in chapter five and chapter six um it like i, I wrote like throughout the section i keep finding myself asking what about this or what about that trying to apply what jesus said to my life and figuring out how to justify like what i've done right and it's like, I don't know that that's the right way to look at this section. Mm-mm. And I and it was like so eye-opening in the sense of like it, right, it's, it's not. And it, it's not the right way to look at it. Right. And throughout that, as I'm working through it, I'm like, okay, but what about this? Okay, in, in this oath section, like, but I worked in, like, is it mortgage? I got a mortgage. Am I sinning? Right. And it's like, mm, that's not not Jesus' intent right. with this section. Right. He says, well, later, I'm giving you an advocate so that you can be, be, be prepared to live in the kingdom of God and work out all these things out. I've given you my Holy Spirit so that, and he will walk with you through this. So when you come to any of these situations, it's not, it is in part, what does Matthew 5 say? What does Matthew 6? What does Matthew 19 say? What about Paul? It's all of that. Plus, it's okay, trusting that the Spirit of God will work in your interpretation of those passages and then your application of what you've understood in the specific situation that you have. And that's why it's. I think it's so hard to say. I mean, there were 613 laws because it takes a lot of laws to cover a bunch of different situations. And they didn't even cover every situation. There were ambiguities in the law already. There's no way Jesus is going to cover every situation in a sermon that takes 20 minutes to read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. But what he's setting up is a lifestyle of how the kingdom of God works. That's that foundation. That's right. And in that, you are working with other people and you're struggling with things and you're getting some things wrong and then there's some clarity brought in some situations. That's what it is to be in the kingdom of God. It's not to go, what does law 39 say? It's to say, what is the Holy Spirit leading me to do in this situation uh, based on scripture and all that stuff? But Yeah, I'm looking for the verse. Uh, I can't find it. Matthew, I think it's 22, 6, where uh, one of the Pharisees and, or Sadducees asked Jesus uh, what the greatest commandment is. Mm-hmm. You know you know which one I'm talking about? Uh-huh. Yeah. And he says, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your body, right? Mm-hmm. Did I get it right? <laughs> uh, Cody and I uh, previously had done like a Bible uh, study. Uh, Every man a warrior, I'd give it a check out. Um, anyway, so when I, what I'm getting at is that is what we are called to do. Um, when I read these, love your enemies, retaliation, oaths, divorce, lust, anger, it comes back to loving 
the Lord your God. Absolutely. And, and, I mean, loving your neighbors, but most importantly, loving the Lord, because by loving the Lord, you're going to follow in line with loving your brothers and sisters in Christ, because we're all created in God's image. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. There's there's two <laughs> there's two commandments for us. Yeah, love God, love others, mm-hmm. um, and and then we come to the Sermon on the Mount and we go, okay, there's some interesting situations in how this love thing gets worked out. Right. But when you boil it down, that's what it comes down to. Mm-hmm. And yeah. and then we try to make like while you guys were talking, I was like, eh, we're we're trying to make like adjustments for the situations we're in. But yeah. I mean, what? like you said, boiling down to loving others. The question, the ultimate question remains the same. Is mm-hmm. this a loving thing to do to somebody? Right. The situations might be specific, um, but the question is is the same. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we've seen, um, we've seen the foundation set by Jesus in Matthew 5 and how the kingdom of God works out. And he is going to continue that in chapter 6. But again, the language is going to change a little bit. It's not going to be, you have heard that it was said. Um, but we'll take a look at what he says in six. Yeah. All right.